0: fellow ag nerds thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the future of agriculture podcast my name is tim hammerich and every week i get to sit down with the founders farmers innovators and investors shaping the future of agriculture and i have a two-part episode for you here today with the theme of innovations in food quality we'll start off with a higher level picture of the innovations in produce with bonnie estes vice president of technology for the Produce Marketing Association. Then we'll drill deeper into one aspect of food quality, arguably the most important aspect of food quality, which is flavor. For that, we're going to talk to Josh Silverman, CEO of Aromix, a company that's digitizing taste and smell. We'll talk about the ramifications that has for not only produce, but other innovative foods and ingredients as well. But before we get there, I was able to sit down with Vonnie Estes and capture some valuable insights about the challenges and opportunities of bringing technology to the produce industry, the role of indoor agriculture and fresh produce, alternative funding models for companies that want to serve some of these niches and the digitization of quality and of supply chains, which, of course, will lead us into part two with Josh. Many of you probably already know Vani, maybe from her podcast, which is called PMA Takes on Tech, find it on any podcast player, or just from her speaking engagements or just being around ag tech. She is a well-known person in the industry. And as I said, she's the VP of Technology at the Produce Marketing Association. She's held leadership positions at prominent companies like DuPont, Monsanto, and Syngenta, along with startups, including DNAP, Emergent Genetics, and Caribou Biosciences. Bonnie has a bachelor's degree in horticulture from New Mexico State University and a master's in plant pathology from my alma mater, UC Davis. With the breadth and depth of Bonnie's background, I thought a good place to start here was just by asking her about some of the key differences between working with produce, as she does now, and working with more of your traditional row crops. Well,
1: I think the biggest difference is having fresh commodity that you have to keep fresh and you have to pay attention to how you take care of it all the way through the supply chain. You can't just put it in a silo for a while. And, you know, I mean, there's time limits on on those other crops, on row crops, but not nearly the same as the coal chain has to work and we have to get it to market. I think another thing in produce is that there's more of a of a connection to the consumer because they're eating you know what you grow they're they're eating it whole and and there's a real connection to the consumer on that you know so many of the startup companies I've worked on you know everyone always says we have to start you know if you've got a product a, a technology you've got to start in the uh, major row crops in corn and soy cotton canola wheat uh, you've got to start there and and if you only get like one percent of the corn market then you've made it and you know but you never do get. Get 1% of the corn market with your first product out, you know, that's hard to do. So I think one of the things that's, that's different is the amount of... Technology and focus in the U.S. uh, specifically that's on the major row crops that, you know, the, the technology is really focused there because of the size and because of the monoculture of it. If you have a solution for corn, there's some variances, but, you know, you've got a corn product, you've got a corn product. And when you look at produce, it's just insane all the different kinds of crops and the different varieties. And you've got annuals and you've got perennials and you've got, you know, different places in the world that you're growing and you've got, you know, usually smaller. And so I think some of the problems of developing technology for the produce industry, say mechanization around harvesting. So you can spend, you know, billions of dollars developing a strawberry harvester, but then really it can only you know, harvest strawberries. It can't really harvest apples. That's another one of the issues is that there's such big differences in the different kinds of crops and and what technologies they need.
0: What about the inbound flow of technology that's trying to be developed for produce? You know, I, I think top of mind, it seems like, you know, technology is certainly accelerating at an accelerating rate. But I'm wondering, you know, it also takes the entrepreneur to say, OK, I'm going to take this technology and and adapt it to the produce industry. In your time there, you know, how have you seen the velocity of of new companies trying to target the space?
1: I think, you know, as I said earlier, it's almost every investor will tell their portfolio companies you must go do corn first you know and so even if you've got people that are interested in corn are interested in produce they end up getting kind of diverted and and then you know you see you know blue river was bought by John Deere and blue river started in um, leafy greens and then once deer bought them they don't work in leafy greens anymore as far as I know unless they've gone back into it they stopped i haven't Checked, but um, as far as I know, they kind of you know moved away from that. So I I think it's it's a challenge because of the reasons we talked about before. It's so broad that it's hard to get a big enough market share in any one crop, you know, to to really make enough money. So I think that's that's an issue. But I am seeing more companies that have. Like sensors or those different kinds of companies that are saying, well, this this would work in produce as well. And some sensors that do under canopy, like those, are even better in the produce industry. So we're starting to see a lot more companies. I, I would say, from just where I sit, and maybe it's just because who I know. So I, I, you know, this is anecdotal, but it seems like there's more companies that come into produce saying, this is the market I want to be in. Then there are companies that have been in corn and say, okay, now I'm going to expand into produce. That that seems to be the pattern.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. If they're already having some success in row crops, it's probably, they're probably benefiting from the scale, the acreage scale. And so it's almost like moving into a smaller house. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs>
1: it's harder. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it happens less often. How does the produce industry foster more technology that is not venture compatible? <laughs> so, so, you know, you can always promote the companies that, that score a $5 million Series A, and that's great. That's going to be a perfect fit for a lot of companies. But there are even more companies that might have a useful tool that might be perfect for hazelnuts and nothing else. How do we develop an ecosystem for those companies?
1: I think that's an excellent question. And I do see some companies that have that point of view that say, you know, we're just gonna build this company and then we're gonna get some sales, and then we're gonna build the company a little more, and then we're gonna get some sales. And so I think it depends on the technology. If you're if you're working on something like Gene editing, where it's going to take a really long time, it's hard to get far enough along to get sales like you need money from the outside or, or biologicals or, you know, microbials in the soil or some of those technologies that are just that are longer term. Sometimes it makes them bad for venture capital, but it also is hard without an infusion of cash of some sort. There's one company I was talking to, AgriFresh. It was a spin out of, of Dow. Um, it's actually public, but it's been around for a long time, decades. And, and they're trying some different digitization types of technologies. And, you know, I was talking to them I said, well, what's your business model? And they're like, well, we can see how this works. Like, we can get some customers. We can do customer acquisition. We can talk to people. We can figure out what works. And, and we have some time. And how great would that be if everyone could do that and they didn't have to rush towards some market? So you know, I don't have a great answer to your question that, you know, we need some sort of ecosystem, you know, and there are some things like SBIR grants and, you know, there's there's some grants and non-dilutive funding. There needs to be more of those. And and maybe, you know, with some of the stuff that's going to come up through USDA around carbon, you know, maybe, maybe we'll have another pool of money that's non-dilutive that people can get their hands on to develop some of these technologies. But I see it as something that's broken in the current ecosystem for us is that venture capital is, you know, the main way to go. And it's not a fit for a lot of the food technologies.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, you all have a lot of members that are big companies grown within the produce space. So that that's like to their core, they're produce people, you know, like a, a Dole or a Driscoll's or, you know, a Nature Ripe or, you know, somebody like that. Are they looking at kind of incubating technology within their companies, and we don't have to speak to those specific names I mentioned, I'm just trying to give the audience a reference point, but are they trying to figure out like, okay, we've always been a produce company, but how do we become also a technology company and sort of incubate our own technologies from within?
1: Yeah, I think um, I'll speak to the ones I know about that won't mind me speaking about them for sure. But you know, certainly Driscoll's is a great example of that on the breeding side. And and they just put a bunch of money into plenty and they have a great relationship with Plenty and trying to look at, you know, how do we do indoor strawberries for all sorts of reasons. And Driscoll's, you know, I mean, they've got a great research lab down here south of me. And. They look at all different kinds of breeding techniques and different kinds of taste. And I don't know the percentage that they spend on R&D, but it's a lot, you know, and they really have a great R&D group and they're, you know, highly trained and highly educated and highly motivated to make Driscoll's a better company. So, so I think, you know, that's an example of one. Taylor Farms is another one that has done a lot of work on mechanical harvesting. They've built some mechanical harvesters themselves to harvest different kinds of leafy greens, I think a lot of companies are starting to do that internally and then they're also looking at partnerships. There's a great partnership that I'd love to talk about this with Church Brothers uh, Farming Group here and Bear Crop Science where they developed a broccoli that had a higher stem so that they could mechanically harvest it. One of the biggest problems with broccoli is that it doesn't mature all at the same time. So you have to go back in the field like five times, you know, and you think about the diesel that you use, the labor that you need, the soil compaction that you're having. And if if you only had to go in, you know, half the amount of time and you can mechanically harvest because it's got a, a taller stem, then that's a great savings. And so you think about, those types of relationships where you've got, you know, a breeding company partnering with a production company that really knows what the needs are. So I'm kind of seeing both, you know, we've got the really big companies that can afford it and have the staff are putting a lot of money into R&D and a lot of the other companies are also partnering with other people so they can kind of direct the technology to really meet their needs.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to look for more examples like that where, yes, it's partnerships, it's you know companies that aren't traditionally known as tech companies, but the industry is in their DNA. And so if you spin off a tech company, it's going to have that embedded in it. Where are the, where are the holdups for more of those examples from happening and how do we make that easier? To me, as I think about the future of agriculture and ag tech... There's always going to be venture capital, I think, and there's always going to be some that need venture capital and benefit from it. But I think for every one of those, there's ten others that are good ideas that would just get blown up by venture capital and need some other system that I don't feel like we really have for them very well at least,
1: yeah, and I think it's I think it's hard too if you're a startup company. This has gotten much better, but, you know, back 15, 20 years ago, if you were a startup company, you didn't want to go to talk to a company like, you know, back then Monsanto, you know, or they would just take all your IP, you know, and that still happens. You know, there's uh, a company that just won this huge lawsuit against Walmart on on uh, some supply chain technology. So so you have to be careful, like, you know, if you're a startup company and your crown jewels is your IP, you know, you don't want to go give it away too soon and kind of how do you do that? But I think, you know, like Bear has this this program this leaps program where they expect and it's great to listen to how they want to invest in technology as they expect longer term and so they're you know willing to invest in companies and not gobble them up, not kill them. You know, the model used to be, you know, these big companies would invest in these technologies. You know, the the funny model used to be back years ago where there'd be a genetics company that had some really great technology. So they'd, they'd go to Monsanto and they'd say, okay, we've got this great technology, you know, can you put money into it? And then, you know, Monsanto or Bayer, or whoever would say, okay, we want your technology for corn and soy and cotton and canola, and you can have it in everything else. And the companies would die. Of course they would die, you know, because they'd, be Like, okay, how do we put this in turf grass? You know, It, it was not a good model, and I think that model has really changed. You know, when you talk to the big companies now, they want the startup companies to live, they don't want to set it up so that the startups die. So, I think that model is changing and is one that will be really helpful.
0: Yeah, that is good to hear. Uh, well, speaking of genetics, you know, where do you see the the biggest opportunities uh, in in produce for you know for genetics to kind of move us forward? I know there's a lot of cool tools that are becoming available with DNA sequencing, CRISPR, and that sort of thing. Uh, where do you see the opportunities to really push the industry forward in terms of genetics?
1: Well, I think certainly just you know regular breeding programs, you know, just just without even going into the tools, just you know, we've gotten really good at breeding. You know, I think blueberries are an amazing example that the reason we have year-round blueberries is now we can grow berries in places we couldn't grow them before. So you know, we can have them year-round, and that's genetics. That's just breeding, and that's you know, that's not any kind of special. Well, it's special tools, but it, it's not you know GMO or gene editing or anything. But um, I think there's a lot of opportunity around using these tools. I think we're at an interesting point in the industry with gene editing. You know, GMO, we pretty much got figured out and I don't see a whole lot of GMO products going into produce, it's just not the way that the technology is going or the industry is going. But I think there is a question now of gene editing and, and how that moves into produce and what's the consumer acceptance and how transparent are we with consumers and do consumers care? And I think, you know, the thing to know about gene editing is that, you know, the very definition of how the USDA, EPA, and FDA define it is that it, it doesn't make a change that couldn't be made in nature what happens in gene editing are are breaks in the DNA that then fix themselves. That happens in the field all the time, like that's going on all the time. And so what we're doing with gene editing is that we're really directing that. So we know exactly where the break is gonna be and we know exactly how it's gonna reform and we're getting a trait that we want by directing that exactly. So how do we communicate that to people where they are? So they're accepting of it. And then how do we direct it in the produce industry in ways that are really good? And I think there's a number of things like um, non-browning is a, is a trait that's pretty easy to, to do on a lot of different crops. And so that really allows for a lot less food waste. And so let's focus on that. You know, if we have a lot less food waste and and lettuce lasts in your crisper, you know, twice as long and you don't throw it away, that's great. You know, so, so there's some traits like that. There's um, more convenient, how can we make you know fruit and vegetables more convenient so that people, especially children, eat more of them? And so looking at the convenience factor is important. So I think we're at this really great point right now of we have these tools, we have genetics companies that can use these tools, you know, how do we move this along so that it's best for the consumer? And then as far as on-farm and climate, you know, these technologies are really going to help as we start having climate change more, the effects of climate change more, where you don't have as much water as you used to. And so you have to grow a different variety because you don't have as much water or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too hot and then too cold. And so really being able to use gene editing to, to help around climate change... In where people are growing crops is going to make a big difference. We're going to get different diseases and different insect populations. You know, how do we get resistance to those? So I see it making a really big impact and we need to make sure that we communicate it correctly.
0: And with your genetics background, I mean, are you seeing more in the fresh produce going the direction away from commoditization. So you're actually developing like not just a strawberry, but, you know, a big company may have their own type of strawberry that you can only get from that company. You know, are you seeing that widespread throughout the produce industry?
1: I think it's happening some in some of those bigger crops like strawberries and tomatoes. And I think certainly as you've heard A number of the indoor vertical farm companies are now saying they're going into strawberries and they're going to be growing strawberries indoors and they'll be more nutritious and better tasting. And so I think we're certainly seeing that some where you can have that differentiation. Um, We still get an awful lot of our fruit from Chile and Peru and, you know, from different places outside of the U.S. And so that's a little less happening there. But I think certainly where there's money to be made and differentiation to be had, it will happen.
0: What are you seeing happen in in kind of the post harvest technology, logistics, food safety, things like that? Anything there that's uh, interesting right now?
1: Well, what's really interesting about the whole kind of supply chain, and it's an area before I started working with PMA that I just didn't know that much about. You know, once it left the farm, I just didn't know that much about it. But I think COVID, especially, you know, with some of the Disruptions and the dislocations that we've had in production and, and shortages on shelf, you know, we really have started to highlight what are the problems in our supply chain and and what's happening. And typically most of the money has gone into really looking at what's going on the farm, you know, the investment and the technologies, what's going on on the farm or what's going on in retail. And kind of that's where the investment has been is is those two bookends. And I think what COVID has done, it's like, well, there's all this stuff that's going on in the middle that we better pay attention to and figure out what to do about that. And I think digitalization is going to be one of the biggest issues of really looking throughout the whole supply chain and figuring out what are all the things that we need to do to be communicating and to make the cold chains work and and to really make that work throughout the supply chain to get especially I'm talking about fresh mostly to get you know fresh food from you know the time it leaves the farm all the way to the retailer or food service and get that digitized so that works better
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i think one thing that's interesting when you mention the digitization of the supply chain is not just traceability, but also in quality. So where you could actually maximize the return on a given load of produce, let's say, or, or perhaps it's pallet of produce uh, based on quality factors. Uh, maybe some are better to go processing. Maybe some are better to go to a super premium market. It seems like that's an untapped data area in agriculture is sort of quality data from field to fork, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. And I think, you know, things like food waste, you know, monitoring food waste and and those types of issues where it really is a lot about being able to track and, and you know, there's a lot of sensors now that are being used that, you know, can actually like, how much longer will this, you know, apple last or this piece of fruit last? So really seeing what the sugar level is and then, you know, understanding what temperatures it's it's been in. And so a lot of that type of information is, is now starting to be collected and starting to be used.
0: Well, I think that's a fantastic transition point into part two of today's episode. That data that's being collected and used throughout the supply chain can definitely help to make things more sustainable and more efficient and help value be captured. But it can also be used to help bring products to market that consumers will want. Going a little bit deeper into that conversation with Vani, where we talked about genetics and differentiation and quality data, I think it teases us up really well To take a look at a startup that's trying to digitize flavor now that may sound a little bit weird at first but it can really accelerate the process of bringing new varieties of produce to market as one example or maybe making sure that different produce is marketed to the right consumers based on their taste data anyway the point here is that there's a lot of potential here with digitization so joining me is aromix ceo josh silverman Josh has a Ph.D. in biochemistry, so I guess he's Dr. Silverman, and he's a serial entrepreneur. He's been the founder of five different biotech companies, including some in the new protein ingredient space. It was through these experiences of trying to bring sustainable foods and ingredients to the market that he realized flavor is really what's most important to the consumer. But it was also really subjective and nearly impossible to predict. So he joined Aromix as CEO, and the company just recently closed a $10 million Series A round with investors that included the Rabobank Food and Agri Innovation Fund. So here's Josh talking about the insights that eventually led him to Aromix.
2: We're trying to bring new sustainable products and ingredients into the marketplace. And what we found over and over again, the, the companies who use these say, yeah, we really want these new ingredients but is a consumer going to like it? What's a consumer going to think about it? Is somebody going, is it going to taste good? And, and is it going to you know, actually sell in the marketplace? And that was a really hard problem. And we find over and over again that, you know sure we can say it tastes good to us, but trying to predict is a consumer going to like it is a really hard problem. <laughs> and it's a thing that nobody really has a good answer to. And we see over and over again, when we talk about you know, getting consumer surveys of what drives purchasing decisions, for new products, yeah, sure, everybody wants sustainable, but usually top of the list for are they really going to buy a specific product or not is do they like it? You know, Does it taste good to that person? And again, if that's not a problem you can solve, that's a major barrier to getting real adoption and getting success in the marketplace. So Aromix, um, I joined as CEO a uh, little over two years ago with the goal of really helping to bring this technology to the forefront really and solve some of these really big problems in the food and beverage and new sustainable uh, ingredient space. And again, what we're doing is, is taking the core biology of the human nose and turning it into Actionable data insight. So the ability to create quantifiable measurements of taste and smell for the first time, which allow us to then when you know somebody says, Yes, my product tastes great, you know, to actually have some real data behind that, to be able to say, well, it tastes great for this reason to these consumers, to allow us to design better products that target those consumers, but also to help market these products to communicate to the consumers why is this product tasting better? Why should they actually buy it? Why should they take you know, a, a gamble and, and pay money for this product that they've never tried before? Uh, and again, a statistic that we use a lot. So there's 30,000 new food and beverage products brought into the marketplace around the world every year. On average, it's two to three years, a couple million dollars of R&D that goes along with that. But on average, there's only about a 20% success rate. So 80% of those 30,000 products every year are not on the shelves a year later right? And we think, you know, a lot of that is these companies are not stupid, right? These technologists are not incompetent, right? They are bringing products into the marketplace that they think are good and that they think consumers will like, right? And it certainly, I'm sure, tastes good to them. We think a lot of the problem is how you get the right product to the right consumer that's really going to resonate because we know, you know, taste and flavor is so personalized and there's plenty of things that I like that you hate and vice versa. So how do we Design products for the consumers of interest, but how do we also, like you said, product market fit? How do we find the consumers that will actually be good for this product? So we can help the companies design these products, but then we can also help them target and market. Because you know, on one side is also how do you convince the consumer that this product really will taste good to them? How do you communicate and show them? You know, with a science-based approach, right? Not just a marketing line of "Hey, you know this." Plant based product tastes great. It's no, they taste great for X, Y, and Z reasons. And we think, you know, based on what we know about you as a consumer, these are the things that will resonate with you and help these companies market their products in a much more rigorous and science based approach to really drive and increase that, take that 20% success rate and drive it up to something that's a little bit better, hopefully.
0: Yeah, and I could see the applications here for you know the the thirty thousand new products a year. I could definitely see this for something like wine or coffee, where people are really appreciating the nuances in flavors. And I could see it even for for like produce, like bringing new varieties, uh, testing new varieties, that sort of thing. I find a lot of times with earlier stage companies, there's always that like second tier that maybe people don't immediately think of. Like when you digitize something, it opens up. All new opportunities that aren't Im- immediately clear. Is there anything that you could share? W- you know that the future might hold once we digitize this stuff.
2: In, in terms of you know the applications of digitizing, I mean we yeah. Once you digitize something, once you have the data, the the opportunities open up exponentially. So we think of this very much in terms of things like Netflix and Spotify. Um, I mean the idea of being able to recommend music and recommend movies and you have to understand what are the core features of how you know we recognize what is different or same about different songs different movies and once you can quantify that you can put it into a database yeah it opens up all sorts of applications you couldn't have even thought of 50 60 years ago and yeah we talk a lot about food and beverage that's obviously you know where most of our customers are where we have a lot of our activities but we have a broad range of customers we work with customers in the pharmaceutical industry we work with customers in the packaging industry we work with customers in the fragrance industry so when you think about it again it comes back to this idea that you know taste and smell is really core to our everyday experience you know on the flip side it it's one of the senses we take for granted the most right if we're just walking through our day and everything's smelling fine you just ignore it but when something smells off when something goes wrong you know it instantly, right? And you react like, you know, you you run into you know, your milk is spoiled. Like you will figure that out really fast. It gets spit out really fast. And it comes back to, again, taste and smell is our earliest sense. It's core to our survival, right? You know, when you're an animal out in the forest, you're looking for food, you come across a piece of food, right? You need to make a decision really quickly. Is this something that's good for me? Is this going to help me? I need to eat it before something else gets it or is it spoiled and rotten and it's going to poison me and kill me if I if I eat it, right? So that decision has to happen really fast. It has to happen almost instantaneously. And if you get it wrong, there's some really serious consequences for that. So this is again, where it's one of those that kind of sits in the background until something happens. Like if you see something, you know, you run across, you know, this really great cup of wine or, you know, your old spoiled putrid milk, your reaction is fast and it's strong. And those types of things occur, you know, all day long. Like if your iPhone starts to smell weird, like you'll, you'll know it and you'll know there's something wrong. You got to do something with it. So, you know, we think about, you know, kind of intuitively taste and smell and food and beverage, but in reality, we use this all the time. Like you smell smoke, you know, right. You smell, you know, the new car smell. I mean, everything that we do every day is really influenced by uh, this smell. So, you know, our customers run a, a huge gamut and we, you know, honestly, our challenge has been we have far more applications than we as a small company can actually go after. Um, and that's really where we've we've struggled. A little, well, we've struggled a little bit just in terms of capacity and again, just being able to get uh, enough resources to be able to address all the customer applications that are coming at us from all directions.
0: Yeah, so that's the next place I was going to go. Strategically, how do you choose? You know, how do you choose where where to focus uh, your your resources? Even a well-capitalized company, you know, it has to make a strategic choice there. So, you know, maybe within a food and beverage context, since that's where my focus is. You know, how do you choose what problem to focus on or what kind of customers to to pursue?
2: Yeah, well, and, and so you know, full transparency. You know, up until last year or so. Basically, we choose by who's walking in the door with the, the biggest check, right? Uh, <laughs> you have to be very opportunistic as a small company. So, if somebody's willing to pay us, you know, great, we'll, we'll work with you. As we become more capacity constrained, you know, we are becoming much more strategic, and, and really, we're looking in on where are the big problems in the industry, where are the things that we can solve, where you know, there's demand. And to be fair, you know, companies not naming any names, but companies that have been around for a hundred years with a well-established brand and a product on the shelf with a, you know, a good supply chain, they know how to make that product reproducibly, you know, yes, we can provide some value. It's not going to be a huge amount. So really where we're trying to focus in is around, you know, people bringing new sustainable products into the marketplace. We see this as a huge trend in the industry and we see a lot of people bringing sort of, new-to-the-world ingredients that have never been in any kind of mass market before, and they're trying to swap out the ingredient list of old, you know, unhealthy, unsustainable products, but trying to maintain that same flavor profile. These are hard problems, and again, if you don't have the understanding of what a consumer likes or doesn't like, you're really at a disadvantage, especially because you don't have the 100-plus years of experience around how consumers have reacted to these ingredients in the past. So kind of that new sustainable protein ingredients, new sustainable plant-based ingredients. I think that for us is a major area of focus where again, we think we can help these companies. And you know, the first few, again, not naming any specific names of companies, but the first few plant based products into the marketplace, they had the time and it took them quite a while to go through multiple iterations, right? And you, we can talk to people who tried the first plant based burgers and yeah, those things were pretty crappy. All right. But now the new formulations, they've gone through multiple years of iterations. They've gotten to places where you know, these things taste pretty good. The new companies coming into the marketplace aren't gonna have that same amount of time. There's a lot more competition. Consumers are being much more demanding um, in this space. And these companies are now moving away from the niche early adopters who are, you know, they'll buy anything because it's sustainable and trying to get to the broad consumer base of people who are buying beef burgers and steaks and, and these things. So how do you move this massive market to your product? And the answer generally is, you know, if it's just equal parity there's going to be no incentive to switch, right? If it just tastes as good as a beef burger, there's going to be no incentive for the mass market to switch. We need to be able to find things that taste better than, right? Not just equal to. And I think this is where we see, you know, the big opportunity to help these plant-based sustainable product companies really come in and design better products, you know, things that consumers have never seen before, never had access to before, but actually will taste great and will resonate with them, right? Because at the end of the day, people buy it because they love it. You're only gonna get a small fraction of people who buy purely on sustainability. I mean, again, if they don't like it, if they don't taste it and they don't love it, they're not gonna be buying it again. So that's where we we really try to help to you know, speed up that development cycle, get these companies to better products that will resonate with the right consumers uh, and be able to do this in a fast and efficient way. I and mean, we talk about sustainability and climate change saving the planet. We don't have another decade to go through and and you know, do trial and error based process. We need to get these people to the right better formulations as fast as they can.
0: Yeah, and I could see how a company would be better be able to optimize something like a sustainable source because they have this quick iteration on the quality side now they, they know that the you know the quality has got to be a given the taste has to be a given and so then they could say well what if i plug the, in this and they could get those answers much quicker w- what about the technology themselves do they just send you a sample and it happens in your lab and then you you give them the results what does that look like from a customer experience standpoint
2: yeah, exactly. So so at the core, we are a, a data company, right? So what we're doing is providing insights around a specific product. We're making recommendations on recipes, formulations, marketing, et cetera. So yeah, the core basic data though is a measurement of how the various receptors in a human nose and tongue would react to a specific product. So that's that's a test that we can run in our lab. And to be clear, we're not scraping anybody's nose, we're not we're not sacrificing or exposing any people. We are cloning and expressing the genes for these receptors in a biotech environment. You know, we test each individual receptor against the coffee, the um, bacon, whatever it is that we happen to be testing. So we do that in the lab. We measure these responses. Ideally we measure several different products so we can give relative answers. So we can then start mapping individual receptor activation profiles versus ingredients in the formulation Uh, and we can create this as a data map and based on we know which receptors are turning on we know what chemicals and ingredients tend to activate those receptors and we know when receptor x y or z turns on how would a human perceive this is this a positive smell Uh, is this a you know a very bitter off flavor you know is this a putrid, you know, off flavor, et cetera. So we tie those receptors to perception. We take the, the mix of receptors that are changing their response to things in the ingredient list. And again, we can use that information and essentially spit that back to the customer to give them a prediction of how to rebalance those ingredients to get the better perception profile to the consumers that they care about.
0: Well, pretty cool to think about the possibilities with that. We live in a a very cool time to be in food and agriculture. So thank you so much, Josh, for being on the show. You can learn more about them at Aromics.com. It's A-R-O-M-Y-X. And thanks as well to Vani Estes for sharing her insights. I hope this all kind of gets your wheels turning and making connections in your mind about what's possible when it comes to quality and differentiation and the future of delicious, nutritious and sustainable food through some of the technologies that we discussed. Before I wrap up, I want to give a special shout out to some of you who shared our recent California water episode. Specifically, I know Alex Fosch Philemon Sithole and Barney Debnam, thank you so much to those guys because I know you tagged me and thanks to all of you who share this content on social media sharing this stuff with your friends and on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever you use is really one of the best ways you can continue to support this show because trust me they're sick of hearing it from me and they would love to hear it from you. Also, thanks for the emails from those of you who sent them. The positive feedback from that episode specifically, again, that's a California water one, really gave me the idea for today's two-part episode. And you might expect a few more like this format in the future, unless those emails start to turn negative. But let me know either way. Thanks, as always, for your time and your attention. I don't take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.